dive in to Exodus chapter 4. Welcome, Ron. Thanks. Yeah, if you have your Bible um, or phone with the Bible app on it, uh, go to Exodus, go to chapter 4, please. And we're going to continue through our our study of the book of Exodus. Um, I have to tell you, though, right off the bat today, um, this is like an absolute nightmare of a text that we're going to look at. If you enjoyed last week's message that was highly applicable to your life and uh, mildly enjoyable to listen to and whatnot, this ain't that. So... Fasten your seatbelts, get the airbags ready. Um, My goodness, this is a tough one. You know it's bad when you start to study and scholars that have died, you know, 300 years ago and current Bible commentators and everybody in between goes, this is in the top three most enigmatic, weird, mysterious, we don't get it, no one agrees about it sorts of passages. One person even said, if this came up in my teaching, I would just skip it. (laughs) And he went, oh man, like, so get ready. Um, But I really truly believe that a lot of these passages are left in God's word, one, because they still matter, but two, they're left in there for humility's sake, Uh, often for the teacher And often for us, as we open God's word, you know, God is fantastic and huge and almighty and completely other than us. And if I got everything about him and everything that he said and could do this with completeness and accuracy every single time, then I would be Jesus. And I'm not. And so we come to this with a particular humility um, and, and the reminder, you know what? Scripture is no tame lion. There's there's a fierceness here that is really to be regarded and uh, approached as something very, very special as it is living and active, and yet um, we come to it humbly. And so, enough with the preamble. Let's read this tasty set of... uh, Verses. Exodus chapter 4, Moses has been called uh, by God, speaking through this burning bush, to go back to Egypt, rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, send them to the promised land. Moses has had excuses, he's had some questions, uh, he's come around that a little bit, and now God is uh, uh, calling him to go on. He's just got an okay from his employer, which happens to be his father-in-law, Jethro, that he can go back to Egypt. And here we go, verse 21. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Okay, we're not gonna get too much into this hardening of Pharaoh's heart here because it's going to come into play multiple times in the next few weeks. We'll have a whole lot more time to address that. I will say this, when it comes to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, there are multiple times in scripture and what we're going to read going forward that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That makes me wonder a whole lot. A lot of questions come to mind. 
There's other points in it where it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's other references that just say, Pharaoh's heart was just hard. I will tell you this, when it comes to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, I will say this, there is never at any point did God harden Pharaoh's heart when Pharaoh wanted to do something good. There was never a moment where Pharaoh was saying, I want to do what's good. I want to do what's right. But God's forcing me to do what's wrong. Rather, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and at points, God saw the direction that Pharaoh wanted to go, and God would give him over to that direction already. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Then here's what you're to say to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, preeminent of ranking. Obviously not literally. Verse 23, I told you, let my son Israel, the Israelites, go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. Okay, so now we've got a conversation here about firstborn sons, uh, the Israelite people as a representative of the firstborn son of God, and then Pharaoh's firstborn son, and then, all right, fun. Here we go, verse 24. On the trip, okay, now Moses has started toward Egypt, at an overnight campsite, It happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. All right, we got about 10 seconds. I will be free with grace. Anybody wants to leave, go right ahead. But otherwise, here we go. Um, I think it's really important that we process through some of this. Um, First thing, let me give you two things that we can kind of camp on lay as a foundation as we start to try to unpack this passage. Number one, God is very serious about sin, uh, oppression, bullies, and injustice. Okay, you got that? We, we agree on that? You, you know God's heart toward injustice and sin and oppression, all that comes with that. He is very serious about that. Why? Because of the damage that it does to his creation. So we've got a God who is serious about injustice and sin and oppression, bullies, et cetera, et cetera. Number two, though, when we get pulled into sin and injustice and oppression, when we're subject to it or we are involved in it, then here's what we know. He will make it right. He will rescue us. He will step in. So God's very serious about injustice, et cetera, et cetera. But when we get pulled in or friends get pulled in, he will make it right. That's on him, okay? 
take those two things to heart as we now go back and consider, try to process some of what's going on in this passage. We hear first off that, that now Moses is being called by God to go have a face-off with Pharaoh. And he's got to confront Pharaoh to get his people free, get the Israelites free out of slavery. What also starts to occur is this firstborn conversation. The firstborn people of God, the Israelites. The firstborn of Pharaoh. And we know a plague is going to come that is going to take the lives of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And then now, Moses has this interaction with his wife, Zipporah, around probably his firstborn, but maybe his secondborn. Okay? So now we're starting to get some clues and piece some things together. We have God going to bat for his people. We have his people under oppression. And then we've got something rhythmically, thematically about firstborns going on. Okay? Now, double back to the good stuff here in verse 24. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, a knife, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Okay. What we see here is, first off, uh, some confusion. This handful of verses has a whole bunch of pronouns that we don't know who is him or who is he. Uh, you can start to do a little bit of the clues processing that the him that God intends to kill is Moses. Then there's some who's mad at who and, and his foreskin and his this and that that we're still left fetching for the who is the he and who is the him. So there's the first uh, set of, of issues. Then we get to this thing that God has struck Moses with something. God's upset at Moses about something and has now incapacitated Moses we know he's incapacitated because it says God intended to bring him to death. And by his wife Zipporah's actions, she has to go do something that apparently he is unable to do for himself. Okay? But we don't know why yet God's upset. So now I'm starting to jot down these things in my study two and a half weeks ago, going, why in the world did I choose this passage and not just skip it like the commentator said he would? But we had to keep going. How is God going to incapacitate Moses? How is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why would he do something like this? Then you continue to read, Zipporah circumcises her son. We don't know if it was Gershom, her firstborn, or the secondborn that's now around. Apparently, it doesn't matter, or they would have made it really clear to us. She steps in, circumcises her son on the spot. We don't know how she knew that would be the solution to the problem. Wives, if any of you looked at your husband who suddenly went into a seizure 
or was incapacitated or starting to die, how many of you, your first thought would be, I got to go circumcise my son? None of you, unless there was something going on beforehand, okay? More questions. Then she says something that's so weird. When she finally speaks up, she says to Moses, apparently irritated, at least that's how I read it, a little embittered or disgusted, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then throws the bloody mess on Moses. What does you are a bridegroom of blood to me mean? More questions, more cloudiness and and confusion. All I know then is God relents. Hmm, okay, I jotted that down. Rather than getting hung up on what we don't know or don't understand, because how scripture tends to work, if it was supposed to be crystal clear, then it would have been crystal clear here. Sometimes you have to do context work, detective work, and whatnot. There are some things that are just left out here that are just left out, and we can leave them then out of the interpretive process to some extent. Here's what we do know. Zipporah's actions stopped the hand of God and saved her husband's life. That's what we do know. And it appears, when you start to kind of piece this together, it appears that God was upset at Moses because Moses had not had his son circumcised. We we understand here that, that God, in this moment in particular, God's always faithful to his promises, right? He's always faithful to a covenant this agreement that he's made between him and his people. And this moment in particular is where the covenant has got real active again. And now he's going to be faithful to his covenant, and yet his chosen deliverer hasn't been faithful to the covenant. And God takes that seriously. Circumcision, if you're not real familiar was an important symbol between God and God's people and God's promises. It, it, was, it was a symbol of these people are my people. It was for every male. It was to be performed as this really kind of bloody ritual on their eighth day of life. And then forever as a male, that would set them apart, especially when they got into family. Oh, you are one of God's people. And it was a way of saying, we are all in with God as God is all in with us. But the picture of of circumcision was was one that kind of was important too. Because I think when, when this comes up here, there's a tendency to go, okay, well, Moses compromised his faith He wasn't fully obedient, and that's what this entire thing is all about. I don't think so. Is that a part of this? Yes. Does God take our sin and our obedience seriously? You bet. But is that what this is about? I I don't really think so. 
Moses did have a compromise of faith here. We don't know why he hadn't chosen to circumcise his son or sons. We don't know if he just ignored it altogether or perhaps he hadn't circumcised his son because he was married to a woman who was not a Hebrew. Zipporah was a Midianite. And perhaps they, she thought that this was a disgusting, kind of gruesome sort of ritual. Maybe it was just to keep the peace in, in the household when they were not amongst the rest of God's people. We don't really know. Moses, did he compromise in his obedience here? Yes. Was that serious to God? Yes. The symbol of circumcision is powerful because when we don't do what God wants us to do, our hearts harden. Disobeying God desensitizes our hearts to what he wants us to do. But circumcision is a picture of cutting away that which covers. And so when Moses isn't practicing his faith, it's a hardening effect. To practice your faith is to circumcise your heart, to soften your heart. And so it was an actual ritual, but it was about a much bigger picture. And yet I still don't believe that's the whole point. It's not all about Moses and him bumbling through this, although that's part of this account. I think it's a lot bigger picture. And sometimes when I get lost and I don't understand what this is about or that is about, I like to zoom out. And when you zoom out on this, what I think this tells us about God is pretty spectacular. And maybe where I get a little concerned when we hit passages like this, one is my ability to communicate it well. The other is there's not a whole lot of so what's. There's not all this like, well, here's three things that go make your life better today after you leave. You just heard a talk about circumcision. Oh, great. You know, why did I even come? But sometimes what we get with time in the word is just a deeper understanding of who God is. And what he's done and what he's continuing to do. And if that doesn't encourage you and your faith, then I don't know what will. All the do's and don'ts and make my life better won't amount to anything if we don't really understand who God is. And there's so much richness here if we kind of continue to press in. You've got these themes starting to boil. You've got the justice of God, and in some ways, the anger and wrath of God toward injustice and sin. You've got blood. You've got firstborn. You've got rescue. What does that start to sound like? It starts to sound like the gospel. It starts to sound like the whole Christian story. And God is a God of both grace and truth. You know that, right? Jesus came as the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. I, I like that. I like the both hands. I, I like that God's a God of justice. Anybody with me on that one? A God of justice, because you look around in the junk that's going around in the world, and we need some justice. I don't want all the junk to continue, so I'm thankful that there's some justice, there's a rectifying, there's wrongs being made right, I love justice. 
up until the moment that I have been the unjust one. (laughs) And then I'm suddenly super thankful for grace. Then I'm really thankful for all the mercy and all the forgiveness and all the love. But they're one and the same with God. They're all together. I was picturing this picture of of truth being kind of the, the foundation upon which we stand. We've got sure footing, understanding that God is true. You know where you stand because you know the truth. And the truth sets you free. But it's also a firm foundation for our feet. But then I got this image of his grace being like a waterfall that we stand under. And the beauty and the refreshment and the the moisture, all of that, the cleansing that comes with his grace and his mercy, but the both and. So then I did a little Google search and found this picture of a guy standing under a waterfall on firm foundation. And I think that's us. We stand on the truth of, of, of who God is and his word and the justice that he provides. But simultaneously, thank you, God, are underneath his grace and his mercy constantly. I'm glad it's both and and not either or, right? Because without the grace, I'm standing on the truth, but that's a pretty dry experience with my Jesus. And without the firm foundation, then I'm just adrift, and who knows what else is floating around with there with me in, in the grace. And so the both and is huge. God is a God of grace and truth. He's a God of, we see it here, patience and justice. How long has he allowed like his people to be in slavery? Like that's sad. But that also means patience for these Egyptian people that have been awful for so long. But then justice kicking in, and now game over, time's up. We're, we're not going to allow this to continue forever. And he's going to step in. The big picture about God here is crazy. Here, here's, here's where to press in a little bit more. In verse 25, Zipporah springs into action and circumcises her son. She then takes this bloody mess, and in verse 25, it says she threw it at Moses' feet. Okay, weird. She takes this bloody mess, throws it at Moses' feet. It made it even more complicated in my study where I found out that a euphemism in Hebrew for feet is the private parts of a guy. Okay, now... With that said, I don't think she's touching the bloody mess there. I still think it's just feet. Some scholars disagree. Okay, now you're even more confused along with me. You can thank me later. She takes the bloody mess. She throws it down. Strikes is more the word there. Moses' feet with the bloody mess of her son. The word that is used to describe her striking the feet with the bloody mess is the same word that's going to get used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, when they're describing the application of blood to the doorpost at the first Passover. 
they strike the doorpost with blood of a sacrificed lamb so that death would pass over them when they were covered by the blood of the lamb. The same striking that goes on with the blood on Moses' feet is the striking over the doorpost. And in that regard, there's a picture being painted here for me and you. And the picture is something like the, 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 the application of the blood of the Son through the faith of Zipporah atoned for Moses' sin. The application of the blood of the Son atoned for or made right or paid for Moses' sin. Covered it. Who does that sound like? What does that remind you of? It just gives me chills to think about how much of this is in the scriptures that are clues and God crying out to us with the gospel story over and over and over again that we can kind of take for granted or miss or or go too far to think that this is just all about us instantaneously and miss the grander picture of who he is and what he's doing and what he's intending uh, to do. I think this act of faith, as kind of fumbling and bumbling as it was, was, was Zipporah acting out in a way, in the best way that she knew how to do, the atoning for the sin of her husband. And I think they had had conversations about the circumcision. And I think she knew that this was an issue. And I think she knew her husband had conceded. And something changed when she saw her husband incapacitated. She springs into action. And she just kind of did as much as she knew how to do and then say kind of what she thought she could say about the matter, and that solved the problem. And, and when that happened, then she, she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I bet she was irritated. I think she was probably stressed, grossed out, whatever. But I think she's also saying more than that. You're a husband of blood to me. It's a weird phrase. We don't know exactly what it means. But it's a kind of a bloody ritual circumcision. And so she's saying, you're, you're a husband of blood that's gone through this covenant ritual. And so, wow, you're, you're a bridegroom of blood to any married covenant-keeping Israelite would have also been a bridegroom of blood. Any faithful, covenant-keeping male Hebrew that then got married would have also been a husband who had gone through this blood ritual saying, I'm a part of the covenant with you, God. I am all in with you, God. And so when she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, I think it's her saying, we might have been on different pages until now, but not anymore. Now, God, we're all in. Our whole family 
is in with you as you are in with me. Now, I could be off on that, but that would be how I would understand and interpret this. I just love how Zipporah, I love her in this. She's so courageous and respondent to the whole thing. I love how she steps in and she just kind of fumbles through. She does what she can and she says some words and it works. You guys, if that's ever a reminder that when it comes to some of the rituals or traditions that we practice in our faith, it's never about the ritual. It's never about the words or the formula, like some magic formula. You say the right words in the right order and that's the thing. Like when we do baptisms, is there anything magic about the water per se? If, if whoever is in there doing the dunking says something different with regard to, you know, in a different order or whatever, does that ruin the whole thing? No. God's looking at what this ritual represents and the faith that comes through it. And he'll take our fumbling through it and I'll take, he'll take our, our, our not getting the words right when we pray or the right thing to say at the right time because he's looking at the faith. He's looking at the heart. And I think he saw something in Zipporah in that moment and went, awesome. Because what I think he also saw was this, Zipporah, you have just acted out something very spectacular about the gospel. You just acted out something that was necessary for your husband and your son here that paints a much bigger picture. And you're going to see that bigger picture in the Passover when the blood of a lamb is sacrificed. You're going to see the much bigger picture generations to come when Jesus goes to the cross as the sacrificial lamb, capital S, capital L, the Passover lamb, capital P, capital L, and lays his life down and his blood atones for our sin. He becomes the substitute. Man. See, blood just doesn't compute for me and you as like a payment method anymore. We're like, what's the deal with that? Why, why does blood solve it, you know? I get that the devil bought me. He purchased me kind of in a weird way through sin. He, he's, he's grabbed me and he's holding me hostage. He's holding me slave. And unless somebody buys me out of slavery, I don't get out of slavery but blood, how does that get me out of slavery? But blood, it just doesn't compute for me and you any more than like me and you today trying to understand how like people in the 1800s bought stuff with beaver skins. That doesn't make any sense, but that was kind of the currency that someone set the price and the price was beaver skins and they said, okay, I'll give you 14 of those for this canoe or whatever it was, I don't know. Any more than if you put brought those people from the 1800s here today and showed them Apple Pay on your phone and said, this is the way we pay for stuff. And they go, what are you, it doesn't even, there's no changing of anything. It's just air. What is this? Well, I know it works. It's how it works. Oh, okay. We don't, we don't get the blood as a transaction. It doesn't matter. You guys, what matters is this. This has been getting me all like, 
the last two weeks. What matters is that like God set the price. He set it. And then he paid for it. He paid the price. And he didn't set like some lame, low little price. The price that he set was like really costly. And then Jesus said, I volunteer to pay it. That's the language here. That's the language coming in the Passover. That's the language of Jesus the Christ who saw us captive, oppressed, bullied by the devil and by sin. And then still upheld justice. Didn't just let us off the hook. In as much as Jesus said, I'll take the wrath. I'll take the punishment so you don't have to. And my blood, my life-giving, costly blood, I'll make the purchase price. I'll make the payment so that the wrath of God can be turned away, not end up on me and you. Man. It's like if you were driving your car and you got a little need for speed and you, let's say you gunned it 110 miles an hour down Montezuma through the square. Almost hurt some people and then got pulled over. And the cop walks up and you know there's a big fine coming. And he walks up and says, yeah, the fine is 10 grand. Forget that, the fine's 100 grand. Do you know what you just did? That was ridiculous. And you knew, I mean, that was horrible. The fine's a hundred grand. And you go, I don't I, there's no way I could ever pay a hundred grand. Fine. You already felt sick getting pulled over. Now you feel more sick and like life's over, destitute, done. And then the cop pulls out of his back pocket his personal checkbook and writes you a check for a hundred thousand dollars and says, here you go. I'll pay your fine. I'll take care of it. You get to go free. Now, don't keep driving like an idiot. But no, I took care of the whole deal right here. You know, in this whole crazy thing, I think it's really easy for me and you to look at this story and see Moses. Oh, what did he do wrong? I better not do that. Or, See Zipporah, oh, wow, what's she up to? What's this all about? Oh, she's pretty cool. Or, or look at this and see Egypt and the slavery and all of that. But do you ever stop and look and try to find Jesus in the midst of the word? Do you ever look in the midst of your day-to-day -day where you're probably going, gosh, what's the deal with me? Or, God, what's the deal with her? God, what's with all this oppression and injustice and slavery and miss Jesus? 
Jesus is right here, the story of Jesus, the rescuing work of Jesus, right here in these odd, crazy, mysterious scriptures. Might Jesus not be right in the midst of whatever challenges you're going through? And maybe this whole journey isn't so much about you or the struggles or even the slavery, but maybe it's about the one who has been making a way to uphold justice and bring reconciliation and bring hope and bring restoration to make right in your heart and my heart and in this world something that no law could do, no amount of good could do, just he and he alone. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he's your only hope. Does God get upset about the injustice that I do? Yep. That you do? Yep. Why? Because he hates what it does to his creation. But is that what this is about, his anger? I don't read this and just see his anger. I read this and see his patience. I read this and see he's providing a way to have wrongs made right. He did it right here in this story. He's going to do it in the Passover. And he did it through Jesus Christ once and for all. End of story. Jesus is your answer and your only hope. If you don't know him today, please talk to one of us after. Please. And so gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the mystery of your word. Thank you for the mystery of the way that you act. And thank you that you are patient and good. And allow us uh, time even when it means more sin or mistakes on our part. But also thank you, God, that you step in and there is a time where you say game over and you're gonna bring justice. Thank you that you did that in a huge way on the cross. And so, Father, we just want to invite you right now into this moment and help us to see you where you're at work despite ourselves or what's going on, just to see you. At the end of this chapter, Moses does get up and he continues on and he finds his brother Aaron and they rejoice. They then take the word to the Israelites about what God has in mind and the elders believe it and they all worship. And then the people of God worship together because they know God has seen them and heard them and is gonna bring justice and hope. And so Father, as your people here today, we are happy to remember your sacrifice for us, providing for us in a way we never could. We're happy to worship you as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I just first want to say thanks, Ron, for the hard work that you put in preparing this word for us this week. Um, you know, the last couple of weeks have been arduous as you've been working through that. And what I appreciate and love is that, um, man, our leadership doesn't ditch the, the tough passages, the ones that are hard to understand or navigate. Um, I think it's really important for us to press through those things, to walk through those things. And even though we're not always able to fully and completely understand what's going on or what God is actually up to or doing, we know that his way is not our way and that um, 
Um, but that through that, he is revealing a plan or a purpose um, that is bigger than just the narrative of that moment. And so, yeah, um, I hope this word was encouraging to you. I hope that you were able to, um, man, just be impacted and moved by this God who is so powerful and so just, yet so gracious and kind to lead us through um, this crazy life of brokenness and um yeah, my prayers and my hope is that if you haven't met Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, that that this is an opportunity for you to step into that space and to to acknowledge that and to invite him to come and to be a part of your life. Um, and that might look different for each one of you and what that might might be. But I encourage you, um, if you're not plugged into a local body somewhere, go get plugged in. It's really important and valuable. And so um, with that, man, thank you so much for listening. My name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and uh, just honored that you would join us on this journey. And uh, we will continue the journey of uh, Exodus next week. But until then, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.